David Kern. I'm Karen Swallow Pryor. And uh, yes, that that is Karen going second. Heidi is not here. She is in Greece still. Well, I guess the day you're listening to this, she probably is is on her way home on a flight over the over the ocean. But as of this recording, she's uh, still gallivanting around 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 Greece. Is gallivanting the wrong word? Is that too negative, Karen? You think? I don't know. I I think it sounds lovely for Heidi. (laughs) Yeah. She sent a picture of, I think, the Acropolis and some, you know, old ancient temple. So she's having a great time. She and her son, Jack, are exploring the world together, which sounds pretty cool. So yeah. uh, Karen and I are holding down the fort here on Close Reads as we discuss the Scarlet Letter. We're going to be discussing chapters 14 through 19, and uh, we'll see how long we go. This is kind of an open-ended conversation. We'll have plenty of time with Heidi in the next episode. And then, of course, we'll have the Q&A episode after we finish the book. So this is kind of the penultimate discussion on the... Well, not on the book itself, because the Q&A still counts. But you know what I mean. This will be our... We've got one section of reading after this, which we'll discuss next week. Um, Karen, first of all, how are you? I'm I'm good. I'm getting into summer mode and... um here in Virginia, and it's lovely. We've had uh, a very cool spring for us, uh, which has been nice, but we're also getting, I don't know if you are, but we're getting a little bit of that haze and smoke oh, from yeah. the Canadian wildfires, so that's weird. Yeah, you can't see it in the air like you can in, in New York, say, in, in the images, but you can feel it in the air. Mm-hmm. Like you, if you, I was playing soccer with the kids in the yard, and I was like, why do I feel like... It's a little bit harder to breathe just all of a sudden. Now, you know, it felt like August a little bit when the humidity gets really intense. That's kind of what it kind of what it felt like. Well, uh, we are going to, going to discuss chapters 14 through 19, as I said. And uh, in this section, we get a couple of pretty important scenes. We get, I was going to say confrontation, but it's not really a confrontation. The discussion, the encounter between Hester and Dimsdale. Um where she finally reveals who Chillingsworth is to him. And uh, we get a little bit more of, of Pearl. Um, and then ultimately, there's what seems like a reconciliation between Dimsdale and Hester. And then we're left at the end of chapter 19, a little unsure of what's going to happen because, well, Pearl throws a wrench in, in things with her unusual demeanor <laughs> and response to Hester's having discarded the Scarlet Letter and letting her hair down and all those sorts of things. Um, We also, and this is where I want to start, we also get a lot of uh, writing about the natural world, Mm -hmm. about the forest and the brook and Pearl's place in it. And, you know, if you read American Lit, the forest is, you know, going up or down the river and the deep, dark forest are pretty important motifs uh, and I think in part because of Hawthorne I think he is one of the people Hawthorne and even someone who's writing more pop stuff like James Fenimore Cooper really kind of built up the legend of the forest as an important place in, in American literature which of course makes sense because you're kind of trying to carve civilization out of those forests and they're also being influenced by you know the tales of Europe, you know, the, the Grimm's brothers and things like that. When you were working on this, uh, this version, Karen, how much did you feel like you needed to emphasize 
the forest stuff <laughs> in your questions or in your introduction or anything like that? Or do you think that Hawthorne's like so on the nose that you kind of just recognize it? And I don't mean that pejoratively. I just mean he's, he just is. Yeah, I mean, I think I remember asking a few questions about the setting um, and and in the discussion questions, but I don't remember if I mentioned it in the introduction, but I, I think it's more the latter. Like, it's just, as you said, if you've had high school English, you know, yeah. and studied American literature there, you just, you just know um, these, these symbols um, yeah. that are so much part of American literature, especially the force. And it's just, we were just, just talking before uh, we started recording here about how the, we're covering a lot of ground in these chapters, but mm-hmm. there isn't that much that happens because so much of what happens is yeah. this rich, thick description of the setting and um, the setting, the mood and the symbolism and so forth. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I actually want to say more about the, not so much the forest, but just kind of the herbs that, yeah. um, that Chillingworth is associated with. So yeah, do you want me to, yeah, we can talk about that because it's it's interesting because you've got Chillingsworth and the herbs, but then at the end, was it in 19 when Pearl sees Dimsdale and Hester, it talks about how she's she herself is also gathering up flowers mm. and she's making them, putting them around her waist and in her hair yeah, and all that. And she yeah. kind of looks like a, a nymph. Was it, is it a nymph that it says or a dryad? Because there's so like many that. things, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, letting his influences you know, wearing his influences on his sleeve there, Hawthorne is. So yeah, let's talk about that because she seems to be making a connection there between Pearl as well. Mm, Maybe a connection between Chillingsworth and Pearl. Yeah, there's so many interesting parallels and perpendicularities, if that's a word. (laughs) Um, And I, you know, and and actually I saw somebody, I I haven't read all of the comments on the Substack, but someone did um, bring up the whole, you know, sort of the, the, triangulation uh in the in the two main triangles between um between Pester and and Dimsdale and Shillingworth and then Pearl and Dimsdale and Pester. I mean you know we've got yeah. these two relationships that are based on three uh which I think structurally throughout this novel there are so many things and that but to begin with the parallel that you just pointed out uh, with Roger Chillingworth collecting the herbs in the forest um, being kind of a parallel to uh, to Pearl gathering the flowers, but the diff- there's a parallel. But the difference, I think, is that you know Chillingworth is presented. I mean, he's a he's a conflicted character for many reasons, but one of the most sort of obvious and resonant ways we see the conflict is that he's supposed to be a man of science, you know, in medicine to know like the the um, you know, I mean, this is the written and you know, in the in the midst of the of the modern age and the scientific mm. revolution. So Chillingworth represents kind of that knowledge, the scientific knowledge. And yet when he enters the story and again at first and then in this this chapter, he's very clearly associated with kind of like the dark arts of yeah. you know, of Native American medicine or more natural um mm holistic <laughs> healing properties, which in this world, well, in, in the world of the novel, and I guess in our own world, these two things are seen as very opposed, like mm. science and medicine, you know, traditional institutionalized medicine does not look fondly on natural remedies and herbs and so forth. And, right, and this yeah. actually, be, I think we already have this in this novel. So Chilling 
Hingworth is presented as this man who represents the best of Europe in some ways and the knowledge and medicine and science of of mo the modern world, but he's come back to this world and he's like resorted to the dark arts of collecting herbs and and, mm. and making poisons and medicines out of them. Um, and I think that is symbolic. Go ahead. Well, is that because of the influence yeah, of say, the world? I think, I mean, I, I, there's so many layers we could go at the influence of the world also, but like, it's, a, it's America, you know, which as you said, like the America is this to the Europeans is this new, um, unexplored, um, wilderness. And mm. so what is dark and mysterious is, you know, is, is, is what is literally dark and mysterious is symbolic of, of what what is um, yeah. what is dark and mysterious in other ways. So mm. um, I th I think Chillingworth's connection to this kind of medicine and these arts of uh, he's, that he's learned. Let's speak. You know, frankly, he's learning from his time spent with Indians, right? Yeah. Um, and so and they're presented throughout the novel in very sort of ambiguous ways as well as sort of the outsiders i think that's a, um, a question that comes up at some point so um so i would contrast that scene um at the end of chapter 15 when Chillingworth is collecting or 14 uh when he's collecting the herbs whereas pearl is do she's not turning those into some dark art or magic she's just like wearing the flowers, you know, in a, in a more natural way, because she's so clearly associated with nature um, in, in, in some cases, in other cases, the supernatural. But uh, in that scene, I think she's just a product of nature. It's interesting because, so on the one hand, Hawthorne is being critical of this, well, puritanical culture, you know, the, the religion that they're practicing that is that is harsh towards someone like Hester. But on the other hand, Chillingsworth kind of isn't really part of that. He represents that sort of new world of science, right? But then he integrates that, as you're saying, with the the, the dark arts, as you said. And then you've got it, it just makes me it makes me think about who who does he actually think is is right? Who does he actually mm. You know, I asked last week, what's the alternative religious vision that he's offering from the one that he's criticizing? But every, you know, just when you think that he's going to point towards someone as offering a better vision for the world, not just a religious vision, if there's a difference. But then all of a sudden he he flips that, right? Like you, you learn something new about that possible alternative vision and it becomes, it becomes criticized too. So, it, you know... In some ways, Chillingsworth seems like he should represent what Hawthorne would stand for. But then, next thing you know, he's doing something evil too. <laughs> so, so who who is the like? What's the what's the, where's the where's the true good in Hawthorne's mm -hmm. mind? Do you think is it is it in Pearl? Yeah, She's so a little complicated too. Yeah, she she is. I mean, there was a um, there was a passage in the reading for today where I actually wanted to talk specifically about. Um, Hawthorne's point of view, or like, right, yeah. or his authorial stance, which, so, you know, we can come back to Pearl and, and maybe, uh, because I don't know if I have an answer to that. And I, it, this is where, and, and this came up, this has come up a couple, at least once before about what does Hawthorne think about, 
you know, what he's portraying. And as I was um, rereading for this week, I don't know if I marked it, but it's in, it's in the chapter um, where um, Dimsdale and Hester are kind of um, justifying their affair. Um, and she, what he, you know, that they, it, that they, there was a, it's the, where they say there was a consecration in their love. Yeah, that's, I think um, that's... that's 17 17 i think yeah so so yeah do you have it so is there a reason where he says did i feel do i feel joy again <laughs> maybe or maybe it's before that maybe i thought i marked it but um you know they, they use that word that there has been some their love had some sort of consecration um and because i and i think i asked a question about it um but when Hawthorne, you know, he's relaying their conversation. And I do think that we are, um, yeah, I, I, it's, it's so important. And I, you know, I'm, I was sure that I marked it and now I can't find it, of course. But um, so, <laughs> I'll see if I can find it. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, I think it's very easy to read this scene and their conversation and think that Hawthorne is justifying their relationship. Right. But yeah. I don't think that's what Hawthorne is doing. I don't think he's criticizing it, but I don't think he's uh, accepting. I think Hawthorne is really asking us to wrestle with these hard, mysterious questions. Um, mm. This isn't like what the Bridges of Madison County or whatever that movie is. Um <laughs> I guess it's a book too, but like, I mean, I just remember watching it years and years ago and it's become for me kind of the whole, the emblematic, oh, this is Hollywood wanting us to cheer for the adultery. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. Right. Right. I don't think that's what Hawthorne is doing here. Um, when he presents them as sort of justifying their relationship, I think he's just, he's really asking us to ask these questions. Mm. Um, and so I guess if that's what I'm, I'm thinking that I'm thinking, I guess we have to do the same thing with Pearl, <laughs> um, which is also, I mean, there is a real life application that I can't help but think of with Pearl. Um, and I don't, you know, I think it's natural for any reader. Um, and that is, you know, when we deal with any child that is born out of wedlock um, and, or, you know, or out of, as a result of a, uh, an adulterous affair. I mean, what are we supposed to think of that child? And mm. I think society and even the church have often answered that question wrongly um, mm. because it is complicated. I mean, there are lots of complicated issues, but um, around a situation like that, um, and I hope that we've come to a place where most of us recognize that, um, a, you know, that child, that life is to be celebrated and embraced and loved, um, regardless of uh, the circumstances which created the child. But in this world, um, we, we see that that's, that's not the case. And I think in our world, we've often, you know, we've often been more similar to this Puritan world than we should have been, um, mm, yeah. or that we'd like to think we are. So, do you think that he, so you said, you said, um, you don't think that he is he is condoning their affair. I don't. And I agree with that. But do you think that there is a way, there's a sense in which he is kind of, um, that in that scene, 
Okay, maybe this is just me telling on myself. But in that scene, when they're... Did you find it, by the way? <laughs> I didn't find that line, no. But, I mean, I didn't find the specific part where no, she's... No, I know, I can't I, I can't Talking about I can't the, the it, word. Yeah. I, and I, I was like, I need to... Mar- I thought the same thing. I thought I'd marked it because I figured we'd want to talk about it. <laughs> uh, but in that scene, I found myself thinking for a second, or, or I don't know what the word, rooting almost for them to be able to to be together, you know, to be able to like, just get away from the, get away from him, right. Get away from Chillingsworth, get away from these people. Like, you know, go back to, she talks about how you could go to lovely Italy. And I was like, just go with him. You know, I found myself kind of rooting for that in the moment. And then you feel yourself rooting for that. And then you immediately think to yourself, should I be rooting for that? And it does seem like he is setting us up, as you said, to not just ask that question, but to, to have to question our own gut, uh, pathos-based responses. Like, there's a lot of pathos in this scene because we know what they've been through. Even though it's kind of just described in summary, you know, mm-hmm. oh, seven years past, we know enough of what they've both suffered and and what's going on in their inner lives to want them to be able to find a modicum of happiness, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I he does a really good job, Hawthorne, I think, of not just asking us to intellectually think about this question, but also to to feel the drama of it, mm-hmm. and and I think that when the fact that the circumstance prob- circumstance isn't really it's not that uncommon, so it's not this isn't like right. you know a, it's not like Athena and Zeus fighting, <laughs> you know it's something that most people will have been familiar with a circumstance something like this, and so mm-hmm. it's a very human you know mistake that they've made, and out of it comes result another human and that human then is someone that as you said we have to figure out like how do we interact with that person um and so did you do you find yourself are you like too emotionally re- removed from the story having read it and studied it and have done this book to where um, you know you like you kind of don't think about that a scene like that in the same way that's, that's a good question no I, and i i do think no i i thought i remember pretty distinctly uh, when I was preparing this edition and going back and rereading it and feeling sort of the weight of that drama. But I think the critical distance, what the way the role that the sort of critical distance plays for me is that I really think that Hawthorne is critiquing sort of the, the community and the structure and the system that brought these people to this point. Um, mm-hmm. So, which in a, in, again, we keep doing this, but it's a similar thing that's happening in Tess of the Durbervilles, right? That yeah. Hardy is critiquing all of the of the society, the culture, the religion that created this in in, in Hardy's world much more impossible situation. I think in, sure. in in Hawthorne's, he's a little he has a little more play there and more ambiguity. Um, but I, so I think I think the novel is asking us less. What should these people do in this situation? Although it's certainly asking us that, but it's really asking us to ask: How could this have been avoided? How did how did they get? How did they get here? How did we get here? Hmm. And by so here, that, do you yeah. mean this point seven years later, or the? Oh, I, 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 well, both points, but I think mainly the uh, the point uh, of this, the opening point of the of the going back to the very beginning of, see, the, of the, okay. the woman holding, you know, who has committed adultery yeah, clearly right, right. and is guilty. And yeah. yeah, she's also, you know, we find out as we go along the, the factors that led to her ill-matched marriage and mm-hmm. 
really mm-hmm. mistreatment on the part of her husband and he disappeared, all, all of those things. Um, they're all um, things that they're individual choices, but they're also part of, you know, a culture that formed and maybe predisposed them to making those choices. Mm. There's that line in 17, I think, where is it? I think Dimsdale says about when he finds out that Chillingsworth has been who he is, he says something to the effect of the old man's revenge has been blacker than my sin. And then he says, he has violated in cold blood the sanctity of a human heart. Thou and I, Hester, we never did so. And I just found the line. Never, never, she said, what we did had a consecration of its own. We felt it so. We said so to each other. Hast thou forgotten it? And he says, no, I have not forgotten. So that line that you were looking for is in response to this line where he says, he has violated in cold blood the sanctity of a human heart. That seems like a big, like a key sort of core line in this book about, you know, what does it mean to to have a human heart what does it mean mm-hmm. to um violate a human heart mm-hmm. what does it mean what does it mean for a human heart to be mm-hmm. a sanct a, you know to something that you have to care for the sanctity of it um mm-hmm. so what's what do you think is the relationship then between like you said that you don't think that he necess- that Hawthorne is telling us to condone her next line. We've, we had a, had a consecration of its own, Mm -hmm. but yet it seems like he does mean, you know, all, what is it? This, this violation is still a problem. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what my question Mm -hmm. is. No, I think I, I, (laughs) no, I think I know what your question is. It's really good. And I, by the way, I did have this whole passage all marked up. So marked up. I couldn't find (laughs) it. It's too marked up. Yeah. Um, and I think this is a really, yeah, this is a very important point in the in the novel and a, and a, and a really important question. So I think um, I think Hawthorne is asking us to think about the difference between different kinds of sins and different um, sort of levels and their effects. And so I, I think that there's an expression that has something to do with like um, that, you know, well, we, we have it in our language, like a crime that is done in the heat of passion versus one that's committed in mm. cold blood. Um, and those phrases point, I mean, they point to a distinction that we sort of instinctively get. That It's like a crime of passion is more understandable. It's, it's not right, but it's more understandable than something that's done in cold blood. And it seems less evil Does that like make le- sense? less demonic or something like yes. that if you sat and planned right, it and right and that so seems right. darker right and i think that's the the sort of human um quality that hawthorne is is pulling out here because i mean clearly chillingworth has you know has a, a grievance against them i mean he is the the man who has been um you know, has been been cheated on, and so, but his revenge, what his his revenge has been blacker than my sin is. If you know, if he, if he had come and um, and there are a couple of references to this that I mark. If he'd murdered them or something, you know, in in the heat of passion when he found out, I think what that would be more understandable, uh, not right, but then then just taking this long protracted calculated revenge on him. Trying to um, inflict as much see. pain and yeah, yeah. Tor- terror yeah. and all that, yeah. Yeah. Um 
And so I, and so again, if I am following the logic of my my own comments here, so if Hawthorne mm -hmm. is asking us to think more about the kinds of communities that lead to these or cultivate or encourage these kinds of, um, you know, outcomes, then, you know, then is he asking if we go back to sort of the punishment and the government of the Puritan society, are they the ones who are operating more in cold blood and kind of a calculated way that doesn't recognize sort of the frailty and fallenness of the human heart and the human condition. Um, and, you know, maybe that's what he wants us to think about more than just these particular individuals in the situation. Hmm. So what are we to make of Pearl's response in, I guess, 18 and 19 to Dimsdale because he kind of, you know, Hawthorne kind of sets us up that they might be able to find some kind of happiness and, you know, those sorts of things. And then Pearl sort of complicates things by not responding to her mother in her, with, with her hair down and with the, mm -hmm. the scarlet letter thrown into the woods and won't, won't come talk to her until she puts everything back to rights. So given what we're saying here and given Pearl's role to play in the sort of box of relationships here, the multiple triumvirates, I suppose, um, and her own status as a character who has been harmed by the circumstances into which she was, to which she was born. How, what are we to make of her response? I think it complicates things in an interesting way, dramatically, but what about thematically as well? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's so powerful that the scene when you know Hester removes the letter, uh, or, you know, and and Pearl won't come to her. I mean, there's so much that's being said there, like it, it because Pearl doesn't recognize her mother, which tells us that for Pearl, her mother's identity is in this letter, right? Which also makes I mean, Pearl wouldn't exist if it weren't for her. Yeah. Um, that what resulted in the letter. So in some ways, you know, this is true. Pearl cannot recognize her mother unless her mother has um, the letter A. And so in a literal way that, you know, it, I mean, it makes more sense in a symbolic or metaphorical way than a, in a literal way. And that's what the book is asking us to, to, to look at. Um, and so it goes back, it goes, you know, so what is Hester's identity? I mean, is her identity really her sin? Is her identity the, the, the in the child that was the result of that sin? Um, and is there any, any way to go to, for these two to be together, if apart from any kind of redemption or justice or, um uh reconciliation i mean i think i think pearl the word you use complicate pearl complicates all those questions um and and if she were if she didn't exist then clearly i mean obviously it would be a different story but i think dimsdale and hester could have easily gone off into like in a literal way they could have easily just gone off from the beginning, because they would never have, you know, if Hester hadn't gotten pregnant, that people wouldn't have found out. Um, mm. And so Pearl, 
is like the embodiment. She's a literal embodiment of what they did, what happened, and how they cannot, there's just no going back um, or proceeding without taking this sort of whole new reality, this whole new world, this whole new person that's been created as a result of it. Um, so she really does complicate it. <laughs> and I think that might be one of the reasons why Hawthorne and the characters in the book emphasize so often how beautiful she is. Like, mm. look, she's beautiful. Or look, she's mm. so beautiful. You know, like it's almost like they're surprised or taken aback at how mm. beautiful she is, despite the fact that she is you know, a child of sin or something, you know, however you want to, however you would want to phrase it. Like he goes to great lengths to remind us that she is, you know, exceptionally beautiful and exceptionally like connected with the world and intuitive and, and, uh, she's smart and, and, uh, maybe not great with people, but you know, hasn't had a lot of experience with that, (laughs) but, um, she, Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I just, this is still related to Pearl, but just, again, sort of the way we're supposed to, you know, it's it's, it's interesting the way this story works because oftentimes we are presented um, with with a literal story that we want to read symbolically. And this one is almost the opposite because some of the things yeah. that happen, they're just clearly symbolic. So what are we supposed to sort of literally pull out of it mm-hmm. to apply in the real world? And yeah, when, that's a great point. It when Hester finds it could because really isn't very realistic at all that what she tosses the letter and I guess it like lands and leaves and ends up in the brook somehow and comes back to her, which again seems like an impossible story at, <laughs> at a literal level. So, but what does that mean? Like, what does that mean? Like, she the letter flows back to her in the brook. Um, so what are we supposed to and she she can't get rid of it. Um, it's like yeah. a horror story, right? Like a doll that you throw away yeah, and right. coming back, like Shaddy yeah. <laughs> Kathy on Twilight Zone or whatever, <laughs> whatever. Talk, talking, t- talking Tina, that's the one. Talking <laughs> Tina. He's coming back. This letter keeps coming back. So what are huh. we, what are we supposed to make of that? Like, what is the spiritual reading of that sort of literal event in the story? It's a great question. <laughs> I mean, I think, yeah, I, I'm sort of asking rhetorically, but I also, you know, I think that's what Hawthorne is asking us to, to well, think it, about. It seems like all of these questions, these spiritual questions are, are yeah, buts or and or type scenarios or just and scenarios because you could say, okay, let's say if we're just speaking like we're just like taking the metaphor and we're trying to like make a thesis statement out of it, which is maybe a kind of pedantic thing to do. Right. But your sins follow you or your sins, your sins will find you out or, you know, you can only hide things so long or whatever, however you want to phrase it. Mm-hmm. There's that. But then there's also, okay, but then how to, what does that mean for everybody else? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Like, that doesn't mean that you should, you know, put someone in the stocks, you know, like where that is true that your sins will, will find you out. But also what's the place for grace or what's the response, the proper response to that, or what is the duty of the culture at large of the, the corporate response? Um, and cause it just, when you think you have a grasp for what the point is or the thesis is, he kind of turns it and mm-hmm. offers a new perspective, either from a character or through the, the narration 
which then kind of points it back at you as the reader. And it's interesting, as you alluded to, that some of these things, like these questions are still fresh in 2023, mm-hmm. as much as they were. Like when we're reading it and he turns it back to us as the reader in 2023, we're, our response probably mm-hmm. is just as very similar to what it would have been in 1853. Um, so it, yeah, I guess my point is that the meta, we read the metaphor, we try to come up with something literal out of it, Mm-hmm. Or try and come up with some point, but then there's a there's a shifting of mm-hmm. the next mm-hmm. metaphor uh, asks us to think about it in a different way, right. which is probably one of the reasons why the book is still being read. That like those right. every metaphor offers a new layer to the conversation. No, I I com- I completely agree, and um, yeah, I, I I don't think it, it there are if there are any answers. Um, they aren't easy ones. In, I mean, in the in the text, as, in terms of what Hawthorne is hoping that we'll do or asking us to do, um, but this so, is what we do. <laughs> can I ask you? Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Um, this might be a little unfair to Hawthorne. Um, I was telling Heidi when we were talking about this book. I think it was Heidi, like not on a podcast. It's just I think she was getting ready to go on the trip, and we were going over some business details and stuff. And the book came up and I said that I think for me, the book is more interesting to talk about than it is to read. Mm. And I'm wondering how you feel about such a comment. Um, I'll just leave it at that. I'm not going to even say anything else. What do you think about that? Am I being too harsh? Is this a, is this a, like a me problem or um, is that kind of instincts it was one of those things I don't know that I've thought about a lot and I just kind of said it, you know, like in a course of a conversation that wasn't on a podcast, but that is now on a podcast. No, I think that's a real, actually, I think that's a really good insight and I, it doesn't offend me. I don't object to it at all. I think that, (laughs) um, I think it actually points to some important questions about how different, um, how literature works and how different Mm. kinds of books work. Um, and so this is a book that's um, very much ab- about ideas. Mm. It has a lot of big ideas, and a lot of little ideas and grappling with a lot of ideas. And so some works are very much about ideas and others are more literary in the sense that they rely more deeply on lang- the language itself mm. um, that is... is um, is it is itself you know so like i guess I, to draw an analogy that may or may not be that helpful but like you could i mean you could look at a painting that's about a bowl of fruit and it makes you think of a bowl of fruit <laughs> and then you could look at another painting and it just really draws you to the painting itself like mm. how the painting was done like the mm. colors and the and, and yeah, the, the brush like, strokes so, and yeah, yeah yeah and so this might be a book that you know and, and it doesn't matter what the author's intention is if we knew that would be helpful but we could say <laughs> that this is a book that kind of um it, it, the ideas are more important or significant than the technique and the language um mm. and uh and then so I would say that about this book, and I would say that that it's true. That's why it's not like one of my favorite books. It's not why you know it's it's um, and and whereas there are other books that I love, I love the ideas in them, um, but I could also read it over and over and over because the words themselves mm. are 
worth reading over and over and they add to the ideas. And then there's also the the question of the drama itself that plays out in both of those kinds of books. The just like the pathos, the the mm-hmm. the I guess you could just say the emotional stakes or whatever that keeps you turning pages. You know, there's lots of books that only do one of those three things. Right. And, right. and probably the lowest of those three again, maybe a little harsh, is the kind of book that only just does the, the you know, we just call them, they're page turners. They're just plot, right? They're right, just right, about right, the emotions. Right, and right. Um, they're, they're, light, they're light on ideas. They're light on like literary artistry. But the mm-hmm. best books are the ones that, the ones that we really truly love and remember are the ones that do, you know, all three of those things. The yes. Pride and Prejudice, for yeah. example. You know? Yes. <laughs> um, Great choice. <laughs> um. I yesterday somebody came into the shop and she was saying I read a lot of nonfiction, but I'm feeling the need to read some fiction. So I need you to help me find something. And we found like a you know like a kind of a psychological thrillery type book. And then I said, "But have you read Jane Austen?" She said, "No." And I said, "Well, here's Pride and Prejudice. Here's like an eight dollar copy of Pride and Prejudice. Start here. Uh, it's the kind of book that just does all those things so so well. But but in many ways is is when you compare it to Hawthorne, which, and they're kind of the same, Austin's a little earlier, she's coming, she's English, you know, there's, there's lots of differences, of course. But it's not like they're not about some of the same things. Like, Hawthorne is more fraught, you know, it's a little more melodramatic. But it's, you know, they're both about how we, like, how, what the what, what the world, the corporate, the larger world at large has the relationships between individual people and the world at large. Um, and obviously questions of romance, although again, more melodramatically presented here. Um, so do, do you think, I, I say all that as preamble to this question that was not completely in, you know, unrelated. <laughs> um, do you think that this book is, is uh, Scarlet Letter, not Pride and Prejudice. Do you think that it is, too light on the the plot stuff and so that's why i feel the way i feel about you know as you said it's about ideas and you did say earlier a lot it's a lot of pages but not a lot happens so does it's does that what lack of not a lot or does that fact that not a lot happens lead it to be not on par with say a pride and prejudice is that kind of what holds it back that it's too focused on the ideas and not enough on those those other two elements and i don't know that i would even like it's pretty well written like hawthorne's pretty you know, he mm-hmm. loves the language um but you know i got you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. yeah no it's interesting because i i actually had thought of pride and prejudice earlier in this conversation and totally huh. different prior to the conversation <laughs> which i don't well, remember I now but just you know just anything we talk about, about books pride and prejudice that's true, yeah. that's true. Yeah. But, it was, it, you know, there's a distinction. And I think part of the, you know, I know it goes back to what, what, what is Hawthorne, what does Hawthorne think? And we don't mm. have an answer to that question. Mm. With Jane Austen, we get answers to that question. So she's used, you know, she's using that, like, I think, I think you can read Jane Austen and know what her view is of, mm the characters she writes and their foibles and their strengths and their weaknesses because she, because she's, she has convictions that are behind the words. I think when we read Hawthorne, um, we don't really have conviction. We have questions. 
Um, mm. And they're good questions and they can lead oh. us to have convictions. But I don't get the sense that Hawthorne has convictions behind mm what he's the story he's writing in. So I, I don't think it really even has much to do with how much happens in the okay. stories. Um, I think it has to do with with our sense of who that who the person is, you know, like we just want to and I'm not saying books have to should be sermons. They certainly shouldn't be sure. or they should be, you know, but there's still a sense that, you know, that that there's a different sense when you read an author that you know has convictions, whether you agree with them or not. Yeah. Um, versus one that's just always asking the questions. And again, that's okay so, too. Is it different? Does this go back to my question from the last episode though about the alter the idea of an alternative vision? Where when you read Austin, it feels like she has a vision for those people, those characters, their yeah. community and the world yeah. at large. Yeah. That seems both comprehensive and virtuous. Whereas here we get someone, Hawthorne is, he is crit, rightly criticizing the world, but it feels like he doesn't have a vision for the people, the individuals, the community or the world at large that is uh, comprehensive let alone virtuous or healing. And so that there's that, is that like that gap there, a big yeah, I, 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 I think that's it. I think you've solved the problem. No, no, I think that I think I think that's what we lack here. Um, and I don't know how how that conversation concluded last time. I don't remember, but but it make, it's making much more sense to me now. I'm 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 seeing that that's a bit uh, uh, a huge difference. I think, and I think it's why. Austin is so beloved by so many people. Like mm -hmm. Hawthorne's respected, but Austin is beloved, mm -hmm. not just because she could write sentences or create characters or be funny, but because that vision mm -hmm. is, is so comprehensively uh, valuable that it, that her books work their way into you and they become yes. like you, you love them. They become important to you, not just as ideas, not just as something to talk about, but they, they kind of live with you. And I'd, mm -hmm. I would venture to guess some of there's a listener out there probably who's going to reject this thesis, but I would venture to guess that most people don't find that a book like The Scarlet Letter lives with them. You know, mm -hmm. it's interesting mm -hmm. to talk about, but you're probably, and you might think about the ideas later. There might be a metaphor that comes mm -hmm. up that helps mm -hmm. you think about something, some experience you have, mm -hmm. but you're probably not living with it like you are with like Elizabeth and, and Darcy mm -hmm. <laughs> or even all of like all of Austin's books, like they create together, they create that vision. So I don't want to mm -hmm. just single out. Right, like, right. It's all of her work. No, I agree. And there's even not to take this too far, but there's even a sense, a, you know, I don't know that Hardy, Thomas Hardy, has a mm. positive vision. Yeah, there's still something to say. Like, I mean, Chess is one of the books that has, you know, haunted me more than any mm. other and has yeah. remained with me more than any other. Mm. So I think even, you know, he has something more positive or present um, that stays with you that, you know, I that this book doesn't have. Like, I'm not like Hester, you know, I don't... Hester and Shillingworth and Dimsdale and even Pearl don't like like live in my soul, um, even yeah. though we might talk about the ideas that you know and the, the problems that they have. Yeah, well, you know, I, I know Heidi likes the way Hester is drawn. I find her, Hester to be, well, I need to. I guess I need to save this comment for the next episode when we read to the end. But I find her to be like a little bit too archetypal, mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. like a little bit. 
not she's woman she's capital w yeah 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 yeah. yeah. feels she feels a little bit not alive although i will say in this section when she emotes a little bit and says mm-hmm. you know she like talks about their relationship and the consecration of it and and like there's this suggestion that they could go off together and find some sort of happiness that's the first time when she feels like a living person again mm-hmm. um and i thought hawthorne's probably doing that on purpose because he wants her to have been secluded and sort of um she's purposefully keeping to herself. She's not revealing herself either to the community or to us in the book um, that often. Whereas I found Tess to be a little more alive. Um, but mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. I I think we should, next episode, we should ask Heidi to talk about that because I'd love to hear her. Her, you know, She just said that to me in passing. Maybe she even said it on the show that she thinks she likes how Hester is drawn. She finds her to be uh, more complicated. Um, so we'll have to let her. We'll have to let her defend yeah. herself on that <laughs> when she's here. You know, what, let's let's end there. But let me ask you what you any if you have any final thoughts on this conversation or anything that you think people should be you know looking towards as they read the final chapters of this book. And we invite uh, we'll have Heidi back on and then do the Q and A after that. So we still have two more episodes to talk about the book. And as much as we just were maybe like a little critical of of it, we're being critical of it compared to like you know maybe the first or second greatest novelist of all time. So, you know, it's a high, it's a high bar to, to, to clear there if you're, if you're Hawthorne. Yeah. The only thing that I would just add that we didn't get to that I think is just, you know, is really important and doesn't need to be belabored is just the way that Pearl um, keeps mentioning how the minister has his hand over his heart. I mean, mm, that yes, becomes a, yes. a refrain throughout these chapters and it's, it's, you know, the symbolism is clear. Um, but it's still, it's, it's powerful because I think in our, you know, late modern mm. age, um, we've kind of lost just how much the body bespeaks what's happening in the soul. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. you know, with so many sort of somewhat far-fetched symbols in this novel, not, you know, some, some that aren't far-fetched and some that are, I mean, that's yeah. sim- that simple gesture of holding your hand over your heart, it, it's very natural, and yet it carries some of the most, um, the, some of the heaviest spiritual weight in this novel. And so, mm. that's a, like a really good example of Hawthorne's art, I think, yeah. is that. So, yeah, I mean, I think we value in the 21st century this notion of, and I do, I mean, of, of subtlety, mm-hmm. but even you know things that aren't subtle can still be powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we value subtlety now so much because. We, uh, because some there's so many of these metaphors become, we we've seen them a lot, mm-hmm, and they mm-hmm. start to you know if you see them too often they start to be, start to kind of lose their, mm-hmm. their power, but, I think in Hawthorne as as much as you know his book of ideas, he presents the ideas in these metaphors and he presents them they do they do come across powerfully I mean even when they're even when they don't seem subtle so I think that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Anything else? What about for the end of the book? Anything people should? I think that I think that it ends in a in a really complicated way. So yeah. I think yeah, <laughs> yeah. it does not. You know, there is no neat bow at the end. Even you know, maybe in terms of the plot, I suppose. But I think mm. the book. I think we just are the book. The questions the book asked ask us to ask multiply and accumulate by the time mm. we get to the end. So maybe just be prepared <laughs> for that. Yeah. 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 
we'll also have to come back to this question of people read it in high school and have typically have you know don't come back to it because right, you know right. either high school ruins it or you don't love it you know for whatever reason so mm-hmm. i, I want to talk about that and see where our listeners are having reread it especially if you haven't read it since you were say 15 yeah. but yeah. you're reading it 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years later how are you how how are you feeling about it now that i'd, I'd be very curious to hear from our listeners on that so um, that might be a good thing to put in the comments under this episode i, I just would love to hear if your appreciation for it has gone up, whether you kind of feel the same way. Just just curious to know where people say I would love that and, too. I would love to know. Um I wonder I'd be be interesting. If if you read this book every 10 years, what how how would people feel about it differently each decade? It'd be an interesting test case. I don't know that I'm willing to do that though. Um <laughs> same. <laughs> so. All right, Karen, thank you so much. This has been a good time. And next week we'll have Heidi back to talk about the end. Thank you. Well for Karen Zwallow Pryor and for Heidi White who is currently somewhere over the ocean. I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Mm-hmm.